Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 48 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome University of Hawaii Emeritus Astronomer Brent Tully, who received his PhD from the University of Maryland in 1972, a pioneer in a branch of astronomy now called near-field cosmology. Tully is an expert on the dynamics of the local universe. His honors include the Gruber Cosmology Prize, the Victor Ambertsumian International Prize, and two international workshops honoring both his work and his 60th and 70th birthdays in Sydney, Australia, and Marseille, France. His research interests include the extragalactic distance scale, galaxy motions, and the large-scale structure of the universe. But today, we'll primarily be discussing the dynamics and evolution of our Milky Way galaxy's place among clusters and superclusters of galaxies in the local cosmos. Tully joins us from Honolulu. Brent, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Hey, Bruce. I'm really glad to be here. First off, congratulations on the workshops honoring your work in Sydney and Marseille. When astronomers uh, devote whole workshops to celebrate someone's work, <laughs> you know they are highly thought of. That's quite an honor. Well, I know. I, I certainly took it as an honor. You, you are, in fact, credited as being a pioneer of near-field cosmology. How would you define what we term near-field cosmology? Well, first of all, cosmology. Cosmology is the study of the universe on its largest scale, its origins, and its content on, on, its, on the overall scale, how it came about. Near-field aspect of it is studying, uh, learning about what we could, uh, can understand about the earliest universe from nearby objects, like uh, looking into the halo of our own galaxy, we see very old stars. You can't see those at great distances, but we can see them nearby, and, and we can recognize that those stars that date to 13 billion years were born at the very earliest times. And so they're, uh, the amount of heavy elements that they've acquired, for example, or the distribution, or the number of dwarf galaxies that are just littered with these kinds of stars and merged to form the big stars... Those are studies we can do nearby, and we'll call that nearby cosmology. We inhabit a beautiful grand spiral galaxy, the Milky Way, which is part of, of a, a local group of galaxies called our local group, uh, composed of, what, a few dozen large galaxies? Well, there's two very large ones, uh, a couple of intermediate ones, and a whole bunch of small ones. In fact, you and colleagues helped identify a newly discovered supercluster, that has been named Laniakea, meaning immense yes. heaven in the Hawaiian language. It harbors some 100,000 large galaxies, and our Milky Way galaxy is located at the edge of Laniakea, close to the border with the Perseus-Pisces supercluster. Let's talk about the difference between a cluster of galaxies and a supercluster of galaxies. Also a bit about the image, the illustration, that looks almost like a a veined leaf. That's how I that, that's how I see it. And you have 
our Milky Way kind of off to one side. The whole leaf is considered to be this supercluster Laniakea. So a cluster is a bound entity of a bunch of galaxies. It could be big, like the Virgo cluster or the Coma cluster, or it could be small, like the local group. Actually, there's only a difference there of scale, and whether you call it a group or a cluster. So, and you could, can go all the way down to very small things. So there's a, a hierarchy of sizes, but the essential ingredient of a cluster is that it's gravitationally bound, and the objects in it are are orbiting around uh, multiple times in a supercluster. This is actually an unbound structure. It's got bound structures within it. It's got clusters and groups within it. But the supercluster is simply um, an overdensity. We have to step back, though, to understand this. We have to go back to the beginning of the universe to understand how all structure is, uh, is formed. So in the very earliest moments of the universe, there were small fluctuations, we'll call them quantum fluctuations, in the Big Bang. And this created a situation where it was not a, a totally uniform medium. There were, there were over-densities and under-densities that were tiny. But over the 13 billion years of the universe, the over-dense regions grew together through gravity. The underdense regions gave up their, their mass uh, to the overdense regions. And we ended up with this, uh, this cosmography of filaments and voids. And where filaments come together, there would be clusters, bound clusters at, at uh, these places. In fact, bound groups would form all over the place. But they, 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 were, like, they were little lighthouses within the, this larger structure. Another feature, though, is that the universe is expanding. And so these, these regions of overdensity have been fighting the expansion. So on scales large, much larger than, than clusters, that is to say on scales larger than, say, 30 million light years, uh, things are actually flying apart because gravity actually fails. The expansion is actually winning. But the essential point here with regard to superclusters, though, is that we can map those regions that are over-dense with respect to the mean density of the universe. We could draw a boundary around an over-dense region, which is a, a, has the analogous uh, situation on Earth to a watershed of a river basin. So if you're on the Earth, you might be at a certain location where I'm on this side of the water shed uh, boundary and water is flowing towards, say, the Atlantic, and I step across uh, to another, I, just a step away, and the water is flowing towards the Gulf of Mexico, for example. We could break the universe up into these regions of over-density, and we'll call that a supercluster. And Laniakea, then, is that entity that we live in. And what we did when we defined Laniakea and gave it that name is we we determined the outline. Now it's three dimensional, of course. You can if you looked at it on a sheet of paper, you could draw a boundary around it, but in, it's actually a three dimensional thing. Uh, but we then defined the boundary such that if you're on one side, you're going towards the great attractor, and if you're not very far from where we are, we would have been going towards the Perseus Pisces. 
over density. What you're saying is a cluster of galaxies is a set of galaxies that are actually gravitationally bound with each other. They're in yes. orbit around each other, but rather a right. supercluster is, is such entity. a is such a large yeah. entity that it is actually gravitationally unbound. I mean, parts within yeah. parts of the yeah. supercluster. Some yes. some some clusters of galaxies are bound because the supercluster is made up of clusters of galaxies, and then yes. the super uh, the, but the supercluster itself is not bound. It's, it's flying. It's apart. flying apart. And yeah. And so, this is the result of basically thirteen and a half, thirteen point seven billion years of evolution, uh, created an overdense region. You called it a watershed. Uh, described it as, yeah. a, as kind of a watershed, an overdense region. Yeah. But an, uh, an overdensity in the cosmos, that doesn't mean it's gravitationally bound. It doesn't mean that objects within that overdensity are gravitationally bound. Yeah, these, these structures were mostly forming early in the universe. You, you have to appreciate, of course, when you go back, that everything was really close together. And gravity was really very effective to back them. And so early on, gravity was winning all over the place, pulling things together. Nowadays, though, uh, gravity is weakening because it's because the densities are, are dropping because the volume is going up. I mean, the same mass in, in a larger volume, so that the gravity is, is less effective now. And, the, and so places are losing to the expansion of the universe. So there's a freezing out of structure now. The structure was really created early. That's why I say Laudia Kea was always there. So going into the future, Laudia Kea will always be there in a sense, but it'll become more and more dilute. So the pattern will still be there, except that it'll be stretched farther and farther apart. So right now, so, so right now, yeah. well, what you have defined as Laudia Kea, we're seeing in its full glory pretty much. It's as, it's as good yeah. as it gets uh, for the structure of Laudia Kea. Uh, going forward, yes. uh, in a trillion yeah. years, uh, Lania Kea will, yeah. will be more and more di dif diffuse. Diluted, diluted, yeah, diluted yes. almost down to nothing, yeah. And the local universe uh, is roughly uh, defined as 500 million light years in any given direction from our solar system. So in other words, yeah. if you are capable of interstellar travel at, at three times the speed of light or work 10 or whatever, uh, <laughs> you would be... If you went in any given direction, 500 million light years in any given direction, you would still be in what we term the local universe. Is that right? Well, we'd still be at Laudia Kea. Yeah. I mean, local universe is open to your own uh, definition, what local means. We are racing towards the so-called great attractor uh, at a rate yes. of several hundred kilometers per second. And at, yeah. at some 250 million light years away, the great attractor is gravitationally pulling our whole local group of galaxies in its direction. Yeah. And this thing yes. was actually uh, first hinted at, I believe, in the, back in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, right? Well, it was the end of the 70s, yeah. End of the 78. 70s. 78. Yeah. Let me mention something that was found actually in the late 60s or early 70s that was actually an important precursor. People were looking at the microwave background. This is the residue from the Big Bang. Right. And yeah, and it's uniform, really is close to uniform all over the sky at about 2.7 degrees Kelvin. Uh, this, is the, this is the 
residue from the, the Big Bang when it became thermalized, it, it cooled off to about 3,000 degrees when the universe was about 300,000 years old and has been cooling since then. It was determined that, wait a minute, there's actually, it's actually hotter in one direction and cooler in the other by a small amount, one part in a hundred. And so that was interpreted as a Doppler shift, which is to say it, uh, the reflex of our motion in a certain direction. And that motion is about 600 kilometers per second. So we had very precisely a direction that we seem to be moving. Okay, that's the first part of that story. The second part then was in the late 70s. People were uh, measuring distances to galaxies. Uh, they could subtract off the Hubble flow, and they found what this thing I was just about to talk about, peculiar velocity. These are, these are velocities that are uh, deviations from the Hubble flow. Now, what is, the Hubble, found, what is the Hubble flow? Let's tell them what the Hubble well, flow is. That's well, uh, that's the expansion of the universe that uh, okay. defined by the Hubble constant. Uh, the farther away you are, the faster you're moving away in a linear fashion. But these peculiar velocities then are deviations from that expansion, which are due to the gravity of, of local objects, local being on whatever scale, uh, very nearby or, or, or more distant, uh, is causing peculiar velocities. Just like we have a, we're going around the sun at 30 kilometers per second. Well, that's a peculiar velocity on the, on the Hubble flow. These people in, in uh, 78, uh, the Seven Samurai was the name of the group, uh, found that we they had a, a peculiar velocity flow of all their galaxies in a certain direction, which was quite close to the direction of the microwave background motion. Well, so, so what's causing it? Well, it must be a lot of stuff in some direction with a lot of gravity. And so that that's, and they called it the great attractor. And that's what you're talking about there, and the great attraction. So, so that was the, the earliest uh, in, indications. But that great attractor is actually the downtown area of Laniakea. So Laniakea, I've described as a supercluster, that's that encompasses all the space, all the volume that's flowing towards a certain place, and that place is downtown Laniakea, Great Attractor. And the Great Attractor <laughs> and downtown Laniakea are now synonymous. So the Great Attractor right. is really right in the middle of uh, of our supercluster Laniakea, and except it's not like it's a. It's like a downtown of, a, of, say, Los Angeles. Well, Los Angeles <laughs> sort of has it, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, not, it's got all these little lumpy things. I mean, in Laniakea, there's something like uh, 18 clusters, right. uh, significant clusters. Uh, so there's no specific, you couldn't put your finger on some place except geographically. You could say, well, if I average between the, the boundaries, here's where I'm going to put the center. So it's not like, but so, it's, so what you're saying is downtown Laniakea or the Great Attractor is not like yeah. Manhattan. It's more like Albuquerque or Phoenix or, or yeah, Los Angeles. Yeah. Is, that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but let's, say, let, still, let's, let's hope we can still get a, a, you know, find a 24 hour coffee shop and get a coffee or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So you wrote in Scientific American that directly behind the Great Attractor region, but three times farther away, is a yeah. monstrous accumulation of clusters, the densest known within yeah. the local universe because 
astronomer Harlow Shapley first spied evidence for its existence in the 1930s. Yes. And this distant, huge structure became known as the Shapley supercluster. The Great Attractor yes. region is a large flat, the bottom gravitational valley with a sphere of attraction that extends across the Laniakea supercluster. Super but behind it is this Shapley supercluster. And we, we don't really yes. have much of a clue about the uh, you know the boundaries of this Shapley supercluster yet do we? Not really. It's we we speak in in velocity units. It's fifteen thousand kilometers per second, point oh five times the velocity of light. That's that's its uh, expansion velocity and the Hubble expansion, and that corresponds to about six hundred million light years. Okay, so yeah, it's it's really huge, uh, and by some sort of coincidence, it's. In the, it's in the same line of sight almost as the great attractor. So they're pulling together. So let's just say, yeah. you know, we're, if you walk outside on a clear night anywhere within the U.S. and you were uh, wanting to look in the direction of Laniakea, which which constellation yeah. would you be looking? Or is it even well, visible? It's not yeah, even visible. You're asking, yeah, you're asking which is towards the center of Laniakea because, of course, we're in Laniakea. So it's right, toward the center, toward, toward downtown. <laughs> if you want to look toward, because yeah. we're not in downtown. We're out. No, no, if you're looking, wanted to see downtown, if I was to put this in coordinates that the astronomers, or I guess uh, amateurs would understand, is it would be at 13 hours, about minus 30. Well, that's a de- <laughs> that's a declination in right ascension. But just for the that's a- right. the casual observer, which uh, right. which 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 uh, constellation well, would they be looking? Okay, so so I said minus 30 declination. That means it's in the southern hemisphere, but it's so you. Uh, any place in the United States, you'd be looking down towards the southern horizon. Ah, uh, the downtown. Yes, Centaurus. Yeah. Centaurus. So, so, so you're uh, even so you're saying that uh, if you look in the direction of Centaurus, which is really visible in the southern hemisphere, that's the direction of downtown Laniakea. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, uh, and and it's kind of curious because our own Milky Way, we are kind of what uh, out on the outskirts of one of the three of four uh, spiral arms, I believe, between Perse- the yeah. Perseus arm yeah. and uh, Sagittarius. To our knowledge, we're the only ascension beings that are capable of even, you know, talking about over-densities in the cosmos and uh, densities within our own Milky Way galaxy. And we're not even in the center of the Milky Way. And yeah. we certainly are not, not even in the center of our own supercluster uh, maybe, yeah. maybe we're in an x ex, x verb you know we, yeah. <laughs> we, may, we may not even be in a suburb we may be in an exurb of, of lania k it looks yeah. like it might be said though that these that being in the exurbs is probably a safer place to be than some <laughs> other places now why is that uh, uh astrophysically why is it safer well yeah i mean there's a lot of violent things happening in the universe supernova going off black holes eating things I think I'd be I'd like to be over here in the exurbs where it's where there's less less of that sort of stuff going on. So you're saying that downtown uh, Laniakea, if you are a civilization that's in this area, that you risk having more supernovae, more violent events. Yeah, where it gets dangerous is in the centers of galaxies, and especially young galaxies or galaxies that are bumping into each other. So that's happening in clusters. That's you know, that's happening certainly more in downtown Laniakea than it is out in the voids. 
you know, but Laniakea itself is 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 not a particularly dangerous place, unless you happen to be at the center of a cluster or a center of a colliding galaxy. So, how unique is our home supercluster super Laniakea, and is there a discernible correlation between the shape and size of Laniakea and any point of topography on the very distant cosmic microwave background? Would I suspect that Laniakea is totally average. There's no reason to think that Laniakea is any different from other superclusters. It's the only one that we've actually been able to define in its full extent. But that's simply the limitations of our observations. How do you actually determine the size, shape, and distance to all these uh, different clusters and superclusters? We can get a gross idea just by getting the the velocities of these galaxies. And that's what people have been doing and, and in large numbers. We've now got hundreds of thousands and maybe it's millions now of galaxies where we've measured dop- their Doppler shift, the Doppler shift, which tells us how fast it's moving away from us. So if we assume that they're just moving away from us with this Hubble ex- expansion, the Hubble flow that I talked about, we can place them just from their velocities. The, the greater their velocity, the farther they, they are away. We, of course, can see where they are on the plane of the sky. So that gives us the three dimensions. I mean, we, we get uh, their position on the sky, and then we figure out how far they are roughly from their velocity. That already gives us pretty interesting maps. What I've been doing, what my thing is, though, is looking for these deviations from that Hubble expansion due to the gravitational pull. And that's the different thing that that we've been doing, is mapping structure based not just on their redshifts, but on their deviations from the expansion and the implications, then, of where the mass is, is distributed that's pulling them around. You actually found several deviations, and you attributed most of those deviations, what, to being pulled toward downtown Laniakea, which is a great attractor, and there's also the Great Wall. Where is the Great Wall? Okay, the Great Wall is not in Laniakea. It's it's in a separate structure. It's an adjacent structure. Uh, it's uh, The Coma Cluster, for example, is in the Great Wall. The Hercules Cluster is in the Great Wall, and it's a, another structure rather nearby, but it's uh, another of our neighbor superclusters. And so you spent... Uh, a great deal of your time over the last 20 years working with colleagues trying to determine local peculiar velocities of thousands of galaxies in in several different uh, studies using both optical telescopes and radio telescopes literally all over the world. Big galaxies are more massive than little galaxies. And all galaxies are spinning, or at least all spiral galaxies are spinning, and that spin depends on how, ma- how massive they are. So big galaxies, massive, spin fast. Little galaxies, not so massive, spin slow. So if we could measure the, how fast the galaxy is spinning, we know how massive it is. And by inference, we know how bright it is. So this is kind of like uh, calibrating your 100-watt bulb. You know, uh, if you just had a light bulb, you... You wouldn't know how much energy it's putting out uh, unless you read the, read it on the on the bulb. But uh, but if you didn't know that, you'd 
maybe have to make a measurement of its absolute luminosity. And then once you've got, you know, it's absolute luminosity, then you know that the light falls off as a square of the distance so that uh, uh, the dis- this distant light bulb would look fainter than a nearby light bulb. It all depends, though, on that calibration. So now that we've calibrated... And this is a, this, this actually, you did this in 1977 uh, with yeah. your colleague uh, Richard Fisher, and it's now known as the Tully-Fisher relation, relationship. That's right. Yes, that's right. So it's a relationship between how fast the galaxy is rotating and its luminosity. And with the knowledge, calibration then, of, of the absolute relationship, uh, we can then go out into the universe, look at some random galaxy, see how fast it's rotating, see how bright it appears to be, and knowing how bright it really is from the calibration, that gives us a distance. And it's a it's a the relationship between the mass of the galaxies, the uh, spin rate, and their luminosities, right? Yes. Well, mass is the intermediary. We, okay. Yeah, that's that's what's giving rise to the luminosity. That's what's giving rise to the spin rate. But you yeah. and Fisher's work enabled uh, astronomers to be able to uh, cosmographers, people who are actually trying to map the distant universe. Which I mean, two hundred fifty million light years is a, it, it's yeah. not considered the distant universe, but it, I mean, it's not yeah. uh, it's not it's not uh, just next door. So you know, that's right. Yeah, trying to get yeah. distances. This was a, 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 a arrow in your quiver that helped you to <laughs> obtain these distances. Before I even uh, interviewed you many years ago for the first time, I had I had heard about the Tully Fisher relationship. I didn't know what it was. But uh, <laughs> I was too naive to know what it was. If I had a nickel for every time I'd seen Tully, the Tully Fisher relationship mentioned in a in a refereed paper, you could I could probably retire. Yeah. So there you go. Yes, I, I, w- I wish I did have a nickel for every time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so con- so congratulations on on that one. Um, so that brings us to there's a, a database that actually now is called the Extragalactic Distance Database. What What is that? We have been gathering together this information that's necessary for the, for this project, basically for our own needs, but we made it available to the general public uh, at uh, edd.ifa.hawaii.edu. Uh, so anyways, if, if you go there, you, you, you would see a lot of catalogs, I, that follow with my name or that I was involved in directly, but other catalogs on Cepheid distances, tip of the red giant branch distances, a whole bunch of different supernova, a whole bunch of different methodologies we've been gathering together. And there's a lot of other bits of information that are useful as well. This came about through three different surveys, uh, Cosmic Flow 1, Cosmic Flow 2, or Cosmic Flow 3, uh, colloquially known among the re- researchers at, as uh, CF1, CF2, and CF3. Give us a little bit of the history of these three surveys, and I think they were preparing for a fourth survey. Well, I've been collecting these da- the, this data since ever, since ever, since the uh, 1980s anyway. But in 2008, we published 2,000 distances to galaxies within this thing called the the local supercluster that includes Virgo cluster very locally. Then in uh, 2013, Cosmic Flows 2 uh, was up to 8,000 galaxies 
and included things like the Laniakea supercluster, and, and we made that discovery through that data set. Uh, 1916, uh, Cosmic Flows 3, 18,000 galaxies. We're still uh, digesting that. We're still talking about uh, the properties that we see there. Yeah, uh, so you, you, flows, said, you said 1916, you meant 2016. Uh, 20, 2016, yeah. 18,000 well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but And now, hopefully, 2021, we will be putting out Cosmic Flows 4, and it will have 50,000. So we're jumping from 18 to 50,000 uh, distances. It'll be a huge jump. And is it going? And, to, uh, is, is, a, is this Cosmic Flows 4 going to be yeah. able to go beyond and measure the Shapley uh, supercluster or out, anything outside Laniakea? It will in certain directions. Uh, the it won't do too much better in the south, which is the direction of Laniakea and, and uh, Shapley. It's really going to boost our knowledge of the northern hemisphere, uh, especially those things that you, you were calling the, the Great Wall, and behind that there's something called the Sloan Great Wall. That's what we'll know a lot more about after we've uh, digested Cosmic Flows 4. How long will that take, that survey? Well, we've got we've got all the data. Everything's in the bag. Uh, it's just a matter of pulling it all together. It, it, it involves seven different ways of getting distances, including the one that's named after me, uh, including something called fundamental plane. It's got uh, supernova. Uh, it's got something called super uh, surface brightness fluctuations, Cepheids, tip of the red giant branch, masers. So it has a whole bunch of different inputs. All this information is on individual galaxies. Now, lots of them exist in clusters. So that's but you are able advantage. to actually measure, take light curves from individual galaxies. Yes. Uh, from... all the, all, all, yes. Okay. All these methods are work on individual galaxies. Good gosh. So you're actually taking radial velocities, which is, in other words, uh, how fast uh, a given galaxy is uh, moving yeah. towards or away from us along our line of sight. And you're able to take the meaningful data and then compile compile this in a catalog, which you can then yeah. use to make these cosmographical maps of the local right. universe. I mean, that, that, that's astounding. So take a take a step back because you got your PhD in '72. Yeah. Uh, yes. Fifty years ago, uh, how have we progressed in terms of contemporary cos uh, cosmology? Because in '72. Would you have even dreamed of being able to do this? Cosmology is just was just uh, in its infancy back then. Really, 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 we didn't know about dark matter. We didn't certainly didn't know about dark energy. We did not have an idea about the initial uh, Big Bang, how that might have worked. There's so much, and of course, the technology, uh, big telescopes back then. <laughs> Uh, there were just a few th telescopes like the 200-inch uh, the at Palomar where there was just a handful of people who could access it. Right. Suddenly there was an explosion of facilities. And then, of course, the big things were electronics. Uh, the electronic detector replacing photographic plates, electronics uh, replacing eyeballs at telescopes. Yeah, there's just been a tremendous... And, of course, computers uh, allowing us to work really fast. Uh, combining all this data couldn't couldn't have done it back then in seventy two. It's not just the telescopes; it's also 
the data processing because of Absolute. the yeah. explosion in yeah. computer science, right? I mean, I'm always Absolutely. amazed at how how much uh, astronomers and people doing this kind of analysis know about software and, and computer science. It's almost, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure any of them could get a job at Microsoft <laughs> if, they, if, they, yes. if, they, if they gave up astronomy, right? The other thing which is interesting, two points which I want to cover, which we haven't talked about. And uh, I've always been personally fascinated, not just by the overdensities in the universe, but by the voids in the universe. Yes. And yes, yeah. there are a hell of a lot of voids in our, in our universe. And you and Fisher, in 1987, Richard Fisher, of the Tully-Fisher relation, noted that our Milky Way galaxy is also at the edge of an extensive empty region that you call the local void. The existence of the local void has been widely accepted, but remain poorly understood because it lies behind the center of our galaxy and is therefore yes. heavily obscured from view. So what is the local void and how does, how does it impact what we know about local cosmography? The local void is, uh, is very important on our circumstances this we we live in something the local the local group lies in something we call the local sheet this local sheet is a wall of the local void and this local sheet is being pushed as the local void expands because it's it's just really the inverse uh, matter is flowing towards high density regions the clusters so clusters are drawing together at the same time these voids are evacuating, and because they don't have much gravity, uh, they're expanding, and the walls around them are expanding. And so we see, for example, that we have peculiar velocities of, of the sort that I was talking about before that are just due to the expansion of the local void. And, and then I, the other comment I might make on the local void is that this is actually part of the... Uh, boundary between us and Perseus Pisces that we talked about before, that uh, on the other side of the local void is Perseus Pisces. How extensive is this local void? How would you how would you rank it in terms of voids in the universe? You know, it's like all of these things that, we, you know, it seems really big when we first discover it, and then we start discovering other ones, and we say, well, okay, our local void's not that big compared to these other ones. So adjacent to us, are some even bigger voids. And the biggest one around is something we're calling the sculptor void. It's really quite big. Uh, we've also talked about some huge voids uh, in at greater distances. Uh, we've talked about uh, the dipole repeller, which is a, a big empty region, which is probably also part of the story about why we're moving why this 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 motion we see in the cosmic microwave background, the 600 kilometers per second, it's due in part to a pull towards the Grand Tractor. It's due in part towards a pull towards Shapley, but it's also due in part towards a, an absence of stuff in the opposite direction uh, that we're calling the dipole repeller, in the sense that it's just an absence of mass. So there's a, there are very large voids around. Are these voids truly voids? Are, I mean, are they completely empty, pretty much? Uh, they're not absolutely empty, as you wouldn't expect. I mean, this is just, you know, it's, I can never get all the dust off my floor. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, so 
uh, it's there's stuff left over, and and if we look into void regions, we do find wimpy little galaxies. Not many. And the, if you had to guess the 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 diameter of the local void, how, yeah. how many millions of light years? And of the largest, some of the largest voids in the universe, they would span over billions of light years, right? Yes, let's wait. Well, um, sort of uh, on the scale of 500 million light years, and I suppose there's some, things could get up uh, to a billion. Yeah, that there were the trouble with uh, on the upper limit is you know you're you're getting up to the scale of what we've surveyed. Have we seen the biggest things? How big can things be? Uh, but right now we're just limited by the extent of our 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 surveys. Another issue that's come up in these surveys, these cosmic flow surveys, is the idea, and also some some surveys by uh, X-ray tele- space-based X-ray telescopes, is the idea that that the universe may not be expanding isotropically or evenly in all directions as it was initially thought. And uh, your work in these cosmic flow surveys has helped researchers with this data, with with this aspect. As I noted in Forbes. It's difficult to detect peculiar velocities beyond a distance of some 400 million light years. But when the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, the LSST, the Vera Rubin uh, Observatory in Chile, sees first light in 2021, you and colleagues speculate that uh, if errors can be reduced, then the detection of the cosmos's bulk flow out to some 3 billion light years just might be possible. Do you think that the that the universe is expanding evenly or, or, or is it expanding in some directions at a, a faster clip, not because of gravity, but just because of, of the expansion of the Hubble flow is, is he, what I'm trying to say is the Hubble flow, the expansion yeah. of the universe even, uh, or are, are there anomalies in that? And then the second part of the question is, you know, do you really think that you will be able to, take peculiar velocities out to some 3 billion light years. Right now, you're, you can only do yeah. it to, what, half, uh, 500 million light years at most? Well, to that first part, certainly there are deviations uh, in different directions uh, of the Hubble expansion locally, uh, but that can be interpreted in the, just as we're talking about due to the uh, different way, the the, the delay of the land of, of the mass distribution. Uh, you, you were asking if there might be something beyond that, whether if you went to very large scales, whether uh, we would see that, in fact, uh, that there's a non-isotropy in the expansion. At present, there's really not anything to support that idea. I mean, there's, there's hints that people have suggested, but I don't think that they're very strong hints. So I think that the, the, the probability is that uh, the expansion is the same in, uh, in all different directions. Now, but that has to be tested. And as you said, right now we're limited. We're limited to like uh, 5% of the velocity of light, and we'd like to get out to 10% of velocity of light. And the way I see going forward that can do that is supernova. I these other methods, I've mentioned there's all these different methodologies that we're entertaining, but most of them start to fail as you get to large distances. The only one that continues to give good uh, results with small errors are 
a certain kind of a certain class of supernova called type 1a supernova that are really good uh, standard candles once you calibrate them and they can work out to a tenth the velocity of light and we have a program in fact in Hawaii where we're hoping to get thousands of supernova within a tenth the velocity of light to map out uh, what might be going on in those scales. You're using the term a tenth of velocity of light. Yeah, again, we're coming back to uh, the Hubble flow, the Hubble expansion. We, go, we measure the Doppler shift of galaxies, and so, so the speed of light is 300,000 kilometers per second. So if we see galaxies at 30,000 kilometers per second, moving away from us at 30,000 kilometers per second, that's a tenth of the velocity of light. That's what I'm meaning there. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so they're they're booking it. They're they're moving pretty quickly. Yeah. But with all due respect, you and colleagues, and you made a lot of progress. But we've only mapped a millionth of the yeah. cosmographically in 3D mapping of the sort that you and colleagues are doing. We've only have mapped a millionth of the observable yeah. universe. A millionth. One millionth. Yeah. Can we say anything at all at this point? about where we lie in a cosmographic sense in the scheme of the observable of the observable universe or is that even an apt question is that the, is that even a legitimate question to, to pose such a question in a universe that, that is expanding isotropically from some some sort of insane over density at the beginning of time are are we on the edge in the center in a corner somewhere well Again, we come back to this 300,000 kilometers per second of velocity of light. So light has been coming to us. So the farthest we can see out is light from 13 billion years. Are you saying that, that you mean yeah. the, the CMB, the cosmic microwave background? Or are you saying? Yeah, uh, yeah. Are you saying? Well, as, yeah, that's right. Well, the, the CMB is, is, is a reflection of that. Of course, very early on, there were no galaxies. Uh, the galaxy has only started to arise after that epoch. But let's say we're talking still, you're, you're, you're looking back to the first um, few hundred million years. If you're looking back to the first galaxies, you're looking back to, the, to when the universe was 300,000 years old, when you're seeing the microwave background. And we're at the center of that, those observations. That is to say, we can look in any direction we want, up, down, left, right. And we can look out 13 billion years and see what's there. If we could hope eventually, with enough work, to map whatever is, is to be seen in, in all directions uh, out to 13 billion years. Now, we're at the center of that, just by, by the manufacture of this map. If you were someplace else in the universe, you'd also be at the center. So there's nothing special about being at the center there. Now, how big is the universe? Well, all we know is that it's bigger than that. Uh, we don't know if if it actually has a boundary and if, if it were to one side or not. All we can say is that the universe is bigger than this and uh, we are at the center of what we can see. But the the observable universe usually is thought of as being, what, 30 to 40 billion light years across? Something like that? Yeah, something like, yeah, now it is. Right. We're looking back... If we look back in time, 13 billion years, but of course the whole place point, has been expanding. Yeah, We look back to 13.7 and 13.8 billion years, depending on what data yes. we use. 
Yes, or if you believe me, I would say 13.4, but okay, that's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so, so we've made a lot of progress in 50 years since you graduated from yeah. with your PhD, <laughs> but when will we be able to definitively describe our location with some precision in the observable universe? Will that take 1,000 years, 500 years, 100 uh, years, what? No, I don't think as long as that. You mentioned uh, LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. It's called, now it's called the Rubin Telescope. Uh, yeah, we, what we can do with that is see back of, to the first uh, 500 million years or so with telescopes like the Keck telescopes, with, with, with the future that generation of extremely large telescopes, these uh, huge telescopes like the we're hoping to have it in Hawaii, and it will happen in Chile. Uh, we will be looking back to see the very first galaxies forming. Now, okay, so that, that means we can actually see that in a certain line of sight. What you've really been asking here, though, is how could we, what time would it take to actually cover the whole sky looking in every given direction? Whoa. Okay, that's a lot of pointings. That's a lot of work. But I don't think it's, it's uh, 500 years' work. I, I, it might be 100 years' work. I don't know. Depends on the facilities that come along. I should think that in 100 years from now, we would have a pretty good map of going back to the first uh, galaxies being formed. So you think uh, 100 years from now, some eighth grader will walk into geography class and, and yeah. uh, the teacher will say, well, this is cosmography. Forget geography yes. for a minute. We're going to tell you yeah. where you are in our observable universe. Uh, we don't yeah. have all the answers. Einstein held up pretty well, and they produced some sort of holographic image of our place oh, in the yeah. universe, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. And we'll you, be think that's busy with, you think that's Yeah, we'll be pretty busy with, uh, <laughs> with uh, I don't know how many billions of galaxies there. That's a pretty busy thing to look at. I've, I'm quite content if... Uh, in those classes you were talking about, they just talked, they just showed maps of what we know right now, for example, of uh, making people familiar with uh, the great attractor region of Laniakea. Yeah, that, that's a good place to start. <laughs> right. Why is this important to you? I mean, what, what, why is it important to know our location in the cosmos for the average person? Well, okay, uh, imagine yourself back in Europe in the... Uh, 1400s and entering into the 1500s, uh, you know, those maps they had of of the, of the planet were pretty primitive. And there was all of these zones of which, which were terra incognita. Uh, <laughs> yeah. terra. Which had sea monsters <laughs> with, and everything with, else, right? Yeah, so the dragons lived there. And, you know, so there was a bit, you know, that people were quite excited about knowing more. Now, of course, the small difference between that and this is that we actually could have a hope of going to those places. And people are pretty crazy about going to the most extreme of these places on our planet. We, unfortunately, will never get to anything but the very, very nearest places around us in the universe just because of travel time. But, uh, okay, I think that's... 
just just knowing that information is awfully intriguing to me and and, and worth my spending my weekends <laughs> as well as my weekdays uh, trying to figure that out. So what puzzles you most about the local cosmos? Well, I, I think it's how big is the biggest structure, which is driving this supernova uh, survey, because we we now have a pretty good idea of the structure that's within, as I said, this uh, 5% of the, of the expansion of the universe. Uh, we'd like to get out to 10% to see if, if we get to a, a domain where we're actually seeing representatives of the biggest things. Of course, it, we're only going to see parts of the universe still, but how big can these things be? You know, we have a theory of how big these things could be, uh, but uh, we have to test that theory to see if, it's, uh, if there's any surprises. Finally, when you look up at a clear night sky, and you have a lot of beautiful ones, even from Honolulu, oh, yeah. what goes through your head? You know, I'm a, I'm very appreciative of of nature's beauty, and I, and if I could share with your listeners what I'm seeing right now as I look out my window onto mountains and and a beautiful seascape here in the blue skies, yes, it, it, it's beautiful, and it's and of course the night sky is beautiful too. I don't differentiate though. I mean, I'm not I'm not one that. Uh, particularly finds awe in the looking up. I, I'm one of these guys that's looking at the edge of the universe and, and these nearby stars are, are dust on the, on, the, on the windshield in front of me here, obscuring, oh, that moon up there, it's very beautiful. But on the other hand, it's, it's dimming the nights, <laughs> it's dimming the, the sky background here. It's making it difficult to make observations. So I'm I'm a little bit uh, hard nosed on this. I mean, I never was. Uh, I I didn't grow up in awe of of the night sky. I grew up in awe of physics, and so that's where I am at understanding how the how the universe works. Brent, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? E- e- email is the only thing that works. I am strictly not on social media, zero social media. So, but I can be contacted at uh, my last name Tully at IFA, which stands for Institute for Astronomy. dot Hawaii. dot edu. So that's that. That would get you through to my email, and that's really the only way that I deal with the outside world. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Brent Tully, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of our local universe. Bruce, thanks so much for giving me this opportunity to talk to you and talk to to the folks that listen to you. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.